The Eastern Cape is arguably one of the most beautiful provinces in South Africa. Amongst the rolling plains, rivers, valleys and farms, there lies a small rural village, Toleni, which between the years of 2008 and 2013 became known as the Village of Death. Nine years on, the fabric of society there is still stained by the shocking acts that took place, with deserted homes scattered amongst brightly coloured ones. The abandoned and dilapidated houses are a reminder of the victims encountered on one man's trail of destruction. A man who was dubbed South Africa's worst serial killer in 15 years. This is the story of the monster of Toledo. Hello and welcome to Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast hosted by me, Bella Monsoon. I'm a mental health professional, so Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast, explores real-life crimes occurring within South Africa from a psychological viewpoint. Every week, a new case is examined and we delve headfirst into the motives that drive people to do what they do. Join me weekly on a journey into the minds behind the madness as we traverse murder, mayhem, and much more. So it's been a while since I've spoken about a serial killer on this channel, but I definitely think with over 20 victims who were all women and children, they deserve to have their story told. And the world deserves to know exactly who the monster of Toleni was. But as with any story, we'll start at the beginning. Bolelani Mabai was born in 1974. I was unable to establish exactly when from any of the records that I looked at. As a child growing up, his father passed away when he was 12 years old. And a year later, his mother had passed away too. After the death of his parents, his grandmother had brought himself and his siblings to live with her in Toleni. Growing up, he was described as a pleasant child. And after living in Toleni, he had then moved for a short while to his other grandmother in the Cuba township in Butterworth. During his time in Toleni, it is unclear exactly when, he ended up serving a three-year sentence in Polsmore Prison in Cape Town for dealing dacha. He had then returned back to Toleni. He would go on to be known by the locals as Tlaedwa, the man who eats alone, as he would often be sitting on his own, smoking his pipe and having his own meals. He never attended family events, ceremonies or even funerals. His aunt, however, would later state that he loved children and he often spent time with her grandchildren. He was always described as quite humble and respectful. Although some said that when they looked at him, they just felt uneasy. When he was living back in Toleni, it was said that his brother was tormenting him. However, it was never made clear by anyone, including himself, exactly what that torment involved. His brother, Siabongo Mabai, was known to have a short temper. And according to his aunt, he wouldn't hesitate to stab anyone if they made him angry, even if there were people around him. In another article I read, it would state that his brother was later sentenced to life imprisonment for a murder. 
However, I was unable to actually find any more resources around that. And so one can only imagine the issues that occurred between the two. Regardless, Bulalani was given some corrugated metal sheets to help him build a shack on his family's plot. And he was left to his own devices. And so he had lived there for a while and he had worked plastering houses. However, after another period of time though, he had left the shack, claiming that once again his brother was tormenting him. Weeks later, it would be heard that he had been spotted in Butterworth, a nearby town, eating out of garbage bins. And in the months to follow, the people of the small village he had left would multiple times try to get him to come back, as he was incredibly useful to the village, as he was very handy. He would do jobs such as cementing, plastering, and bricklaying, amongst other things. And on top of that, his prices were apparently incredibly good. And so he had eventually returned, however, he had gone on to stay with another family from the village. And then in February of 2012, he would find accommodation with Nokwaka Castle. He would move into the Rondavel next to where her and her family were living. Now, in order to understand life in a rural village in the Eastern Cape, or even in South Africa, you need to understand the dynamics at play. Toleni is a village that lies along the N2 freeway, about 15 kilometers from Butterworth, a town situated between East London and Ntata. It's a small village with cattle, sheep and goats grazing on the vegetation. In such villages, everyone knows everyone, and for that reason, strangers tend to stick out. Often, life is very different in these locations, and the difference is reflected most significantly within the belief structure and culture. One of the main principles that these little villages hold, especially in the case of Toleni, is that of minding your own business. Whereas there has always been petty crime, with the creation of more taverns and bars, and the subsequent increase in access to alcohol has only led to a surge in more serious crimes, such as murder and sexual assault. That is not to say that these things did not exist before, but they just became so much worse and way more prevalent. And it was under this new version of Toleni that Bolalani had begun his reign of terror. It had begun in May of 2007, when Nofinish Eselina Mayakeso, a 78-year-old woman, had attacked Bolalani when he had broken into her home. She was not having it, and she had lashed out at him with an axe. And then he had run off, because he was unarmed. He, however, had returned later with his own axe, and he had raped her and then hacked her to death. For the next months, to the public knowledge at least, he lay low in the small village. And then, in 2008, a piercing scream was heard from a nearby tavern. Although many people had initially just thought it was people fighting, which unfortunately was a common occurrence, it was soon discovered that a woman had been hacked to death. This woman was Mrs. Mavolani, and she was just one of so many victims that Bolalani would leave in his wake. Throughout the remainder of 2008, four more victims were discovered. Three other victims were Ngadiswa, Zentle, and Lazola Mafika. 
Unfortunately, I was unable to find the name of the fourth victim. Their deaths and the crimes were not considered for some strange reason to be linked, and so there was not one single individual or team that was tasked to the investigation. Rather, multiple individuals with varying beliefs of the motives that led to the murders. By 2009, there had been 10 deaths in total, six women and four children, all with the similar violent method used. I was able to ascertain some information about some of the victims. Two of them were Ntombomzi, 69 years old, and her granddaughter Nonalwa. Another two of the victims were Nokekli and her daughter Sifokolo Nogea. Many of the victims were sexually assaulted and every single victim was hacked to death. Unbeknownst to the community, Bulalani was keeping a close eye on everyone, especially the neighbours of the houses that he worked on. He would only ever approach houses where he knew there were no men living there or where the men were away. He ensured that the only inhabitants were always women of varying ages and sometimes their grandchildren. And just to interdict for a minute. In South Africa, it is common that you will find young children living with their grandparents in villages or rural areas. Whilst there are multiple reasons for this, the main ones are that their parents have either passed away or they are working in the main cities and often cannot afford to bring their children with them. Housing is also very scarce, with most of these workers living in the townships. And there is often not enough income or time to be able to have their children with them either. So the almost luxury, which I'm sure many from different parts of the world and even different areas in South Africa would not consider it as such, of watching your children grow up is non-existent. Back to the narrative though. So Bulalani targeted those who were vulnerable, whom he knew could not and would not fight back. The village was in fear, living in constant terror of the butcher who came at night. And as the weeks went on and a new year dawned, he struck again. It was 2010 and his next victim was Mrs. Nondwe Mbeki. Her daughter, Sanatso Pamela, was staying in the Mbeki family home at the time with her two children, Ongama and Kazemla, who were two years old and six years old at the time. As the little one would keep her daughter up at odd hours throughout the night, Nondwe did not think much when she heard footsteps around midnight and she had gone back to sleep. The following morning, she had gone to the kitchen to boil the kettle. It was then that she had noticed that the kitchen door was opened as well as the door to the room where her grandchildren slept. She had immediately entered the room and she found the body of her daughter Sanatso strewn across the doorway. She then, horrified, had come across her two grandchildren, the life drained from their bodies. All three had been hacked to death. And Mrs Mbeki had heard not one scream. Over a period of three years, 16 women and children had now been murdered all in the upper part of the village. And there really wasn't much coverage about it either. I mean, up until this point, all of the cases, as I mentioned, 
were being dealt with separately. And so, with the most recent murder of the Mbeki family, the organised crime unit from East London was assigned to the case. And with them, the man who would eventually catch the monster himself. And so, we meet Batandwa Aaron Hanisa, captain in the Saps, part of the organised crime unit in East London. Toleni was his hometown, and so he had returned to help with the investigation. The investigative psychology unit from Pretoria were also called upon, and Lieutenant Colonel Ian DeLang joined the investigation. He created a matrix of the cases in order to fully analyse them. His task? To find a link between 16 different docket cases that could give the police more information on how to identify the perpetrator or perpetrators. And so it was quickly discovered through the joint investigation that these murders were almost always taking place on a Sunday. It was also deduced that the murderer or murderers would also have to be locals who knew the town and its inhabitants As I mentioned earlier, strangers did not go unnoticed in a town where everyone knows everyone. And so the profile grew. The perpetrator or perpetrators would also close the door behind them, eliciting very little suspicion from those who may be passing the home as it would appear that the inhabitants were simply not home. In terms of the injury caused to all of the victims, there was always some involvement of the left-hand side of the head, and the murder weapon was always an axe or some sort of knife. All of the victims were gruesomely killed, and many were sexually assaulted, regardless of their age. And there was a very clear pattern in terms of the victims, who were almost always older women and young children, the most vulnerable of society. So as the profile grew, it became clear that they were looking for a male from the area, a single perpetrator. And with that, a reward of 250,000 rand was offered for any information that would lead to the arrest of this perpetrator. But that money would remain unclaimed. With no leads in sight and a stagnant investigation, the women of the village then took their safety into their own hands. They armed up, gathering and keeping machetes, for example, in order to protect themselves against this unknown assailant. One woman in the community, Nomfandiso Mpochane, even offered up her home as a safe haven for those too scared to sleep at night. Her home already had burglar bars, so it was thought that it would be safer for the group. Due to the intense fear surrounding men, as well as the trauma that so many women and relatives of the victims had, no men were allowed anywhere near the crisis centre. With the community patrols and an increased police presence, 2011 was a quiet year. That silence, unbeknownst to the community, was probably just as a result of Bulalani not being in the area for most of the year. However, just before 2012, he had returned. And just when it seemed like the torment was finally over, another spate of murders took place. 
the community believed that there must be more than one killer. Because how can one man control all of the victims, ensuring that no one ran away and that not one scream was elicited? But I'll touch on this later. However, as I previously mentioned, the experts on this case believed that it was highly unlikely that a duo or team were behind the murders, as it didn't quite fit the norm. During this time, forensic testing was also being done on the DNA samples from all the victims. The youngest victim that DNA in the form of semen had been found on was only 8 years old, and the oldest victim was an 83-year-old Gorgor. Michelle Thompson, a forensic pathologist, would state that on six of the samples, there was also a DNA match. And so the experts concluded that the only way to catch the perpetrator would be to gather the DNA samples of all the men in that small area, so that a comparison could be made. And so on the 17th of May 2012, Operation Good Hope began. Units including the Organized Crime Unit, the Dog Unit, Forensic Divisions and all police officers from the local and surrounding areas were called. Toleni was surrounded and cordoned off. Every man and every boy, including schoolboys, over the age of 16 were called and DNA samples were taken. Almost 340 samples in total. And of course, Bulalani's was one of them. Although on the day, he was unable to have his fingerprints taken as he did not have his ID book on him. And so the labs set to work. However, if you know anything about processing DNA in South Africa, there is almost always backlogs. And so the entire process can take a very long time, especially if the cases are not high profile. And in lower profile cases, such as the victims of a small rural Eastern Cape village, this can take even longer. And unfortunately, as the delays continued, so did the murders. On May 28, 2012, in the Munyelwa household, a grandmother, Normandla, and her four grandchildren, between the ages of 15 months and 13 years old, were all attacked. That baby would be Bolalani's youngest victim. There would be two survivors, a 12-year-old boy who was left severely injured and with brain damage, as well as a three-year-old girl who was seemingly missed by Bolalani as he was attacking the grandmother. She had been sleeping in a pile of blankets next to the bed. Lucanio was the 13-year-old female victim, found outside, sexually assaulted and lifeless. None of the surviving victims were able to give a description of the attacker, as one was only three years old and the other was left severely brain damaged as a result of the attack. The uncle of the victims was sleeping in a home just meters away and reported hearing not one scream or strange sound during the night. Noknolo, the mother of the infant Leema, whom she had left with her mother, for the night, had returned the next day to a scene from hell. She would go on to state about her mother. She was everything to me, and I was everything to her. 55-year-old Nompumzele Florence Lubambo lived with her grandchild. 
Due to everything that was going on in the village though, she had asked her nephew to come and stay with them at the time for increased safety. In August of 2012, her granddaughter was playing at the neighbor's home and after having such a good time, didn't want to really come back and so she ended up spending the night. Mrs. Lubamba's nephew was on his way to the bathroom the next morning when he noticed there was a window that was broken to the home. He immediately knew that something was wrong. He had then called a neighbor and the men had approached the home. Inside the home, they had found the body of Mrs. Lubambo covered in a comforter. When Captain Hanese had arrived on the scene later, he noticed that a light bulb was removed from the room and on the coffee table below it, there was a big footprint. Some articles that I found would later state that it was a shoe and then a shoelace that had been left behind. I'm not exactly sure how one would leave a shoelace or a shoe behind. But anyways, in the interview with the police officer himself, he had stated that it was a footprint, or rather a shoe print. And with this new development of this extremely large shoe print, the community suddenly thought that they knew who the killer or killers were. And they pointed out Siabonga Mabai, whom, if you remember, just so happened to be Bulalani's brother. And also happened to live just about a hundred meters or so away from the crime scene. At the residence, Siobonga was not there. However, Bolalani was. They found him sitting in his room along with an axe that had blood on it leaning up against his wardrobe and in the dustbin pairs of used disposable rubber gloves. With suspicions raised, they had then taken one of his work boots back to the scene of the crime, just a mere few meters away. And what do you know, it was a perfect match. He was then asked about the blood on the axe, and Bulalani had said nonchalantly, This is Mrs. Lubambo's blood. It was me who killed her. And so, on the 12th of August, 2012, after a five-year killing spree, the monster of Toleni, Bulalani Mabai, was arrested. Not one person in the community had suspected him all that time. When he was arrested, they even thought that the police had the wrong man because he was so very quiet. But the DNA didn't lie. And Bulalani, who was number 336 of 339 males tested, was a match to the crime scene samples. And once this match was confirmed, even more details surrounding the crimes were confessed to by Bulalani. He told police about his habits, how he watched and chose his victims. He would go on to identify each of his victims more than the 19 cases that the police were investigating. He had then gone on to point police to the Halazo homestead, just out of Toleni. It was here that he had been working on the home, plastering it and had left bricks missing in the structure. When he had returned after dark, he had simply removed the bricks and entered the structure, making his way to the bedroom where Mrs. Halazo and her grandchildren were sleeping. He had then murdered all three of them. He had then set fire to the structure using the paraffin stove that they had. This would burn their bodies. The entire incident was only reported, therefore, as arson. 
Polilani would then go on to state that he had murdered another woman whom he had met whilst travelling. He had apparently had consensual relations with her, he had told her that he loved her, and he had then still killed her. So charming. He then directed police to the site where she was buried. All in all, there were 23 innocent lives lost. And the reason? Well, Bulalani never gave one. At the Butterworth Magistrates Court, the families of the victims would finally come face to face with the person who had taken away their loved ones. Throughout Bulalani's arrest and trial, his aunt maintained that she would not see him at the time as she felt as though that would disrespect and increase the suffering and trauma of the victim's families. At the time though, she realized that she could not turn her back on Bulalani, someone whom she considered to be her own child. Essentially, she was stuck between a rock and a hard place. <laughs> Bulalani Mabai, who was 39 years old at the time, pleaded guilty to all 36 charges against him for the murder of 14 women and 9 children. Whilst listening to the charges, Bulalani would frown slightly whilst chewing his lip and looking off into the distance. Very disinterested and detached. He received 25 life sentences to run concurrently. Also, according to South African law, he will be eligible for parole in 25 years. Please do not get me started on that whole debate. High Court Judge Nolutando Konjwa said, Between 2007 and 2012, the community of Toleni lived in fear because there was a predator living among them. It mattered not how young the victim was. No one was spared. It's not clear how you were able to escape capture for such a long time. When Bolalani was asked if he regretted what he did, he had said, <laughs> He went on to elaborate. Even to the people of Toleni and the citizens of South Africa, I would like to apologize and I am very sorry for what I did. His words, however, lacked remorse and sincerity. And right after that heartfelt apology, he would go on to state that if he was not caught, he would still be killing. Yeah. So whilst he is locked away from the world, his family, especially his aunt, feel the repercussions of his actions. <laughs> And even though Bolalani is behind bars, his actions are still ingrained within the fabric of Toleni society. And the community refused to believe that he acted alone. Might they have a point? Well, at this point of the episode, it's time for our deep dive. 
First off, for the record, let's quickly define the term serial killer. There is no real precise definition, but most experts agree that a serial killer is an individual who has murdered at least three people over a period of more than a month, with a cooling down time between each murder. Some believe that there also needs to be a deviant psychological motive that extends beyond the murder itself. And these are often developed in early years. From the very beginning, attachment patterns and early life interactions play a major role in developing the beliefs, identity, and mental health of a child. In Bulalani's case, it's unclear about the involvement his parents had in his life. But we do know that they both had passed away by the time he entered his teens. He thus grew up without a real home, a safe space to call his own. The vital adolescent stage of personality and emotional development would have therefore 100% been affected. One of the main triggers in serial killers is a history of childhood abuse or parental guardian neglect. This often leads to feeling powerless and behaviours that serve to overcome the vulnerability that is experienced. Then there is also the question of torment that Bulalani faced at the hands of his brother. This is not delved into in any of the resources I found, and perhaps that in itself is a clue. Like I mentioned, in small towns, the unspoken rule is to keep your affairs private. On a side note, Bulalani is also related to another convicted murderer, Ngwa Laseli Mabai, who was sentenced to two life terms and an additional 10 years for the murder of a 70-year-old Toleni woman and her 12-year-old granddaughter. Yeah, pretty sus. After his arrest, Bolalani was referred to the Fort England Psychiatric Hospital in Grahamstown, and after evaluation, he was declared fit to stand trial. However, judging by his behaviour and actions, without being able to actually view the reports that were constructed, Bolalani definitely has many traits of antisocial personality disorder, previously known as psychopathy. Please keep in mind that there are many people in the world on the spectrum of ASPD though, with only just under a third of the cases being severe enough to meet the criteria for psychopathy. So here are some of the traits that I feel Bulalani expressed. Throughout all the murders and the subsequent trial, Bulalani expressed a lack of empathy and regard for human life. He, however, would say in court that he was of value to society because I have learned from this experience and what I was doing was not right and unacceptable. In the next breath, however, he would confirm that he did not have respect for human life. His actions were planned and premeditated. He was great at hiding his true self. No one suspected him in his small community they valued his skill and knowledge, and he was well-liked. However, on multiple occasions, he was described as somewhat of a loner, an individual who never socialized or was surrounded by others. This was also odd for members of the community, as Bulalani was in his 30s. And with age comes societal expectations of where a person should be and what a person should be doing. In his case, perhaps there was an assumption that he should have his own family, and perhaps he tried to and failed. That failure and the subsequent loneliness 
could have spurred on the events that occurred. Or perhaps he just never had that desire to begin with. The only mention of a relationship, or rather a consensual encounter, was the one that I mentioned earlier, where he had apparently told the woman that he loved her and he had then still killed her. Whether or not he told the truth, that is a different story. What is clear though is that throughout all of his attacks and murders, his goal, like many other serial killers before him, was to regain power and control. Sexual assault and murders of a vulnerable population are always linked with a power dynamic. His victims were either significantly older or younger than him, and always female. And no matter how many lives he took, he continued, unable to quench his desire for power and satisfaction. It was stated in court that Bolalani does not appear to appreciate the enormity of his actions. He appears to lack insight into the seriousness of his actions. In fact, the accused, by his own admission, stated that had he not been caught, he would have continued killing. It becomes doubtful, therefore, if there is any chance of rehabilitation. And the only reasoning he offered as to why so many had to die was that he said his victims would be able to identify him. But what then of the 15-month-old infant that he killed? When asked about it, he had said, I killed the child because I was driven by an evil spirit. This brings me to the cultural motives that were associated with this case in a bid to understand what drove Bolalani to do what he did. I mentioned these for the main reason that the Eastern Cape is a province that is rich in culture and deep-rooted in a belief system and values that have existed for many generations. Two traditional healers from the province believed that Bolalani suffered from what is called Igunga, a spiritual illness. Now, as in Western practice and psychology, mental illness is believed to be a biological disease, stemming from the brain, which is the organ of the mind. In African practice, sometimes disorders that are not biological in nature are seen to have spiritual roots. Ikunga is a sickness that has been known for years in Kosa customs. The traditionalists believed that Bulalani continued his killing spree because he was not cleansed via a traditional cleansing ceremony after his first murder. It is believed that a person who is not cleansed will kill in the same month of a different year. They used the fact that murders were committed in January and May of different years to back up this theory. Whilst we cannot know the true motives that drove Bolalani, what we can discuss with certainty is the way in which this entire ordeal was handled and covered in the media. Or rather, not covered. I mean, honestly, I struggled to find articles surrounding the case and there was barely any news coverage of it at all. And this was the case of a serial killer that was amongst the top five most prolific killers in the country. So why the silence? Unfortunately, the answer is not a great one, but one that must be faced nonetheless. There seems to be little value placed on impoverished black lives, not only by the media outlets, but also by South African governmental organizations. There is so much of crime in these areas, 
and it's just not taken seriously. I mean, it took five years and pure luck in the form of a boot print to find Bolilani. I mean, even after the DNA samples were taken, it took months and the murders of more innocent people, including a baby, before the perpetrator was even caught. So yeah, please excuse me for expressing my contempt of the system. I mean, I guess one should be thankful that the perpetrator was even caught. But there are clearly larger issues at play here. Human life should be valued equally, regardless of colour, culture or economic status. Every person who is a victim of a crime has someone in the world who loves them, and their lives matter. I do cover more well-known cases in the series, but I always aim to shed further light on narratives that are not always focused on, for this main reason. I mean, I struggled to even find all of the names of the victims. No innocent soul deserves to lose their life in this way and simply be forgotten. Just another number. Just another statistic. No child deserves that pain and suffering. I cannot even fathom what was going through the minds of Bolilani's victims as he attacked their families. The only solace that can be taken from this entire situation is that the monster of Toleni is behind bars and cannot harm anyone again. But the question remains, was he the only one involved? Many community members think that there was someone else involved. That would explain why no screams or sounds were ever heard. When Bulalani testified in court, he always used the pronoun we when answering. That led many to ask, who is the we he was referring to? So I'm sure many of you are thinking that his brother may have had some role to play, given his history and his past behaviour. However, according to police records, his involvement was ruled out, and he went on to pass away later in 2012. But since 2014, four teenage girls have gone missing from villages near Butterworth. Three of them were found dead, and the fourth, 18-year-old Lutando Makabane, has been missing since the 1st of June 2018. So... Is it truly over? Just months prior to Lutando going missing, on the 29th of March 2018, the department unveiled a large tombstone featuring the names of all of Bolilani's victims. But is this even enough? In a little village like so many others in South Africa, where the residents are almost forgotten by the government by the media, by the world. Thank you for joining me this week to pay homage to the victims of Bulalani Mabai, the monster of Toleni. Although he is behind bars, the repercussions of his actions are felt daily by the families of the victims he left behind and even by his own family. In a province so beautiful, such evil occurred. And although we cannot change what happened, we can use the experience as a reminder that every life is precious. Every life matters. Until next week, stay safe, stay blessed, 
and stay the amazing human beings that I know each and every single one of you are. Bye!